Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for being with us for another edition of our CRE Executive Roundtable series on how our industry is handling the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's episode features insights from DFW International Airport CEO Sean Donahue on air travel, Cushman and Wakefield's Travis Booth on subleasing, and Newmark Knight Frank's Brian O'Boyle on multifamily investing. Before we get started, I'd like to give a quick reminder to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow Trek on social media. We've linked to all of our accounts in the show notes. And now, here's our latest CRE Executive Roundtable right here on TrackCast. John, what we're looking for is, is what your world looked like pre-COVID, what it looks post-COVID or in the middle of it, and kind of what you think the future looks like. And then if you could kind of give us your overview, and then we'll kind of open it up to questions for the group. Okay, <clears throat> sounds good. And Linda and Bill, uh, thanks for uh, inviting me to, to update everybody, and I'll I'll make it brief and leave some time for, for Q&A. Similar to, I believe, the overall economic environment for the DFW region prior to COVID, DFW Airport was on a roll. We were uh, growing. We were especially growing, as Linda said, on the international side, and we had announced uh, approximately a $3 billion capital program to build a six terminal. So, you know, as the region goes, DFW airport goes and, and the region, as I think everyone would agree, was, was very strong uh, economically and, and we were benefiting from that. Obviously the pandemic has uh, had a massive impact on aviation. I, I've been in aviation for 35 years and undoubtedly it is by far the single largest disruption in aviation history. And, and I don't say that lightly. You know, I was with United Airlines on 9-11 and obviously we all know what happened during the GFC, but from an aviation perspective, nothing compares to, to what we've seen over these last seven months. But again, similar to the region, uh, the airport is recovering faster than almost any other airport in the U.S. And you might have seen over the summer, even though we were down 40 to 50 percent in terms of passengers, um, we were actually the busiest airport in the world. Now, when you're down year over year 50%, you're not really gonna celebrate uh, being the busiest airport in the world. But it was indicative, again, of the fact that we were recovering faster than, than our competitors, and that's a good thing. The, the other positive aspect of this has been post Labor Day. And as many of you know, post Labor Day is when the business traffic returns. And usually business traffic is what kind of carries the fall for, for the airlines and airports. And leisure traffic falls off for obvious reasons after the summer and kids are back in school and vacations uh, kind of go on hold. So we were expecting post Labor Day for things to get pretty slow again. And actually in September, we carried more uh, traffic than we did in August. And, and so far October has been, been better than, than our expectations. And, and what has really surprised us is uh, the leisure traffic has kept up post Labor Day. Business traffic is still anemic. You know, I talk to companies locally, I talk to companies nationally, and, uh, you know, no one that I'm talking to has seen uh, very much business travel at all. But leisure traffic is continuing, and uh, that's what's continuing to carry, uh, carry us and, and, and those airports that, that are doing well. And, 
typically the U.S. airports that are doing well, to no one's surprise, kind of the southern tier, and then also up into uh, Colorado and Wyoming and Montana. And our expectation is domestic travel will return faster. And, and we do believe there's quite a bit of pent up demand. And when, uh, knock on wood, when we you know, hopefully do have a vaccine and people start feeling confident um, in traveling again, we believe there is going to be a, a bit of a surge there. The two unknowns are what has been kind of the permanent impact on business travel. And my own personal opinion is I don't really buy into this uh, view that, you know, what we're doing today with video calls is going to replace business travel. I just don't see that happening. Um, I am sick and tired of being on video calls. And I think a lot of people are. Um, and if you have to get out in front of a customer, I, I believe that type of business travel is going to return. The, the wild card is for the big corporations where they had quite a bit of travel just for internal uh, meetings, you know, will you see some of that travel permanently turn into video type calls? You could see that. So, you know, there, there's lots of estimates out there in terms of business travel being permanently reduced. You know, if I was to guess right now, I'd say maybe by five or 10%, but you know, these, uh, these guesses that people are saying it's reduced by 20, 30, 40%, I, I really don't buy into that. And then the other wild card is international. Um, while we're doing better domestically, international traffic for any airport is down significantly. We were down 80% in August. Uh, we are working with American to uh, start fast COVID testing at the airport. Matter of fact, we believe we'll start it by the end of this week. Um, and that's to hopefully start up some international travel where there are quarantines. It's actually gonna start on the Hawaii trips because there's still a quarantine when you go into Hawaii. And then we're also gonna test it to San Jose, Costa Rica. And our hope is uh, that will, the fast COVID testing uh, will help us maybe restart international until the vaccines come in. Will, will that eliminate, will the testing eliminate having to quarantine? That, that is the expectation. The, the question, Bill, is this. Um, can both governments, when you're talking international, can both governments agree on the methodology of the testing? So, you know, there's PCR testing, there's antigen testing. Uh, the U.S. government might say, you know, a fast COVID test in 15 minutes via antigen is fine. And the Hong Kong government might say, no, it's got, a piece, it's got to be a PCR test. So we're going to have to just work our way through that. But uh, we believe the, the fast COVID testing is something that can restore customer confidence and hopefully break through some of these quarantine issues. And then finally, um, as you can imagine, we've spent a lot of time and effort and money uh, making sure DFW is safe and sanitized and clean. And we're using all sorts of technologies to do that. We're actually uh, installing UV in all of our HVAC systems and the terminals. But I will tell you, while technology is, is part of the solution, uh, we also hired what we call these strike teams. We hired about 150 employees who just go out and are cleaning high touch areas every day. And what we found is kind of the technology and the old fashioned cleaning, you put those together, it gives customers confidence. They like to see, they like to visualize things being cleaned. And uh, so we're doing both. And then I, I'd also tell you, I've been traveling quite a bit and uh, having worked for the airlines, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with 
what's going on in terms of the, the cabins of aircraft. And I would tell you, traveling is actually safe uh, because of the air filtration systems in the airplanes. And many people don't realize, but all the big airlines have the help HEPA filter systems, which hospitals use. And I saw some data recently, flight attendants actually have some of the lowest uh, contraction of virus rates of any job, uh, any kind of essential job out there right now. So um, we're not seeing, you know, uh, people catching it from airplanes. We're not seeing it catching people catching it from uh, the, the airports. But at the end of the day, people have to feel comfortable. And if you feel comfortable traveling now, we're going to take good care of you. If it's going to take a vaccine before you feel comfortable, completely understand, and, and we'll be ready when you come back. And, and then finally, uh, my last point before making a comment on the real estate at DFW, you know, we, we all look at travel from a business or personal perspective, and, you know, we take our trips, and we see customers, or we see family and friends, and that's kind of an individual uh, view of travel. Prior to the pandemic, travel and tourism was 10% of global GDP. So when you look at the economic impact of travel and tourism, it is very important we get back to the, the 2019 levels and uh, it has an enormous economic impact on communities and businesses. And uh, it's critical that we, we continue to focus on restoring that confidence and getting everyone back uh, traveling again. On the real estate side, quickly, uh, we have really not seen any type of decrease in uh, real estate interest at TFW Airport. I, some of you are well aware, um, some of you do quite a bit of work at DFW and we appreciate the partnership, but the Southeast quadrant of the airport has just been on fire the last couple of years with all the logistics centers and warehouses. Um, and Amazon, I think, for example, is now up to 5 million square feet of space on DFW Airport. Um, so we continue to see interest. Uh, we appreciate everyone's partnership uh, on the real estate side. We still have quite a bit of land for development and uh, where it makes sense for people, we'll, we'll continue to be good partners to all of you. So Bill and Linda, I'll uh, shut up and see if there's any comments or questions or rumors. Great, let me make one. One, you've got a little bit of developer in you with your positive outlook on people getting back to travel. I feel the same way with people working from home. And then Andrew Levy ought to enjoy this comment. You're saying le leisure travel is up after Labor Day, that must be all the people working from home <laughs> that are being inefficient and, and going out and partying. Do you not agree, Andrew? Right. So anybody have any questions for Sean that they'd like to ask? I think the GDP number is incredible how, how important it is. Um, anybody have any questions in kind of an open forum here? Could you speak maybe to the rumor that Southwest Airlines might be moving some of their flights to DFW? <laughs> sure. And, and uh, the reason that's come up is Southwest announced earlier this week they're going to start flying at uh, Intercontinental in Houston and at O'Hare in Chicago. So obviously uh, DFW kind of came on the radar map. Uh, I don't see it. Uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, if because of the, there, there are still uh, right, the right amendment still has application on some aspects of DFW and love and Southwest and American. And one of them is if Southwest wanted to fly out of DFW, they would have to give up some of their gates at Love Field. And, and I absolutely don't see that happening. Um, uh, 
Uh, Love Field is, is a monopoly for, for Southwest. And uh, as you know, they've been in a, uh, a legal fight with Delta for several years on, on not giving up gates uh, at Love. So for Southwest to do that and open up more competition at Love, I just don't see that happening. Uh, the second point is uh, both Southwest and American have, have you know, found a way to compete hard, to compete aggressively in this market. And, uh, but I think they've also found a way where you know, they're not gonna do anything foolish and, and try to upset the cart, if you know what I mean. So um, both airlines are really successful in this region. They both have their points of strength and uh, to, to create kind of a World War III in the aviation industry in this market right now, I just, I don't see it happening. John, where do you think the highest opportunity markets are for us right now to expand to? Boy, that's a tough one, Linda. I, you know, we're gonna have to recover markets before we look at expanding. And, uh, you know, we just got the board to approve earlier this month a multi-million dollar incentive program to recover international flights. Um, so that's our priority is to recover. And then once we get back to where we were, then, you know, then we'll focus on new markets. But uh, we got to get some of these old markets back before we start looking at new ones. And, and the airlines are so risk adverse right now for them to, uh, to go into new international markets. Uh, I just don't see that happening for a little while. Hey, Sean, this is Mike Lafitte um, with CBRE and Trammell Crow Company. We've had a long history out there uh, with you guys. Hi, Mike. And appreciate all the partnership. Two, uh, one question, and well, two questions. One's kind of silly, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Okay. The first question is just comment on the retail tenants and how they're surviving, what you're doing to accommodate them in the terminal. I'm sure that's been a challenge. And the second question is, when I leave the airport, you know, why is the technology, the technology is slow to get out of those gates. I can fly down the toll road at seven miles an hour and it picks up my toll tag. Why does it take so long to get out? Of, it seems like the speed to get out of the airport could be improved. I don't know if that's a technology thing. Sure. Or what, what's the, uh, so those are my two questions. Okay. On the retail side, uh, you know, the concessionaires have been, uh, in many cases, especially in the first couple months, they were crushed. I mean, our traffic overall was in April was down 80, 85%. And a lot of these retailers are small businesses and, and you know, they didn't have the financial wherewithal to, to, to fight through this type of uh, pandemic and the impact. So we made a decision early on, uh, we effectively, waived all rent payments and and initially we did it through September and now we've extended it through March and what what that has done obviously is it's helped uh, the small companies through this period uh, we walked away from 70 million dollars in revenue we're never we're never going to get that 70 million dollars back but we thought it was the right thing to do these companies have been great partners to us and we want them to be successful on the other side. The good news is we now are up to about 60 to 70% of our retailers are open and that's good. And, and are they doing as well as they did last year? No, they're not, but they, you know, two thirds of them are open and that's a good sign. Uh, when I travel to other airports, it is rare to see more than just a handful of concessionaires open. So we're gonna to continue to support them to the best of our ability until we all you know, get back to you know, getting on our feet. Now, on the, on the uh, toll uh, roads, so uh, if, as you either leave the north or south end of the airport through the toll plazas, if we deployed the same technology uh, that you see that NTTA does 
we would have so many accidents because if you think of the toll plazas, they can be anywhere from 12 to 15 lanes, and then they go down to three lanes. So if we let people just kind of blow through the lanes, um, we would have a, you know, we'd have a disaster on our hands in terms of accidents. So uh, we do intentionally uh, capture the, the license plate uh, from a technology perspective. It also will capture your entrance and your exit to make sure we've got uh, kind of a closed loop. And it does take, you know, anywhere from three to four seconds. But Mike, if we just did what NTTA does, and we could do it, um, you know, it would be like bumper cars leaving DFW airport. Yeah. Okay. I get it. <laughs> I've always wondered, and I'm sure yeah. others have too. I saw some smiles. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? John, I appreciate your time very much. Very good. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for the partnership and uh, stay well. Yeah. Thank you, thank Sean. You, appreciate thank it. You. Okay, Travis, you're up. We're in a market where you're hearing there's all this sublease space coming on the market. And I've been in markets. I don't know how many down cycles I've had. I don't want to admit because that'll tell you how old I am. But there's been many where there's been subleases and no activity. And um, a lot of sublease space in any market isn't good. But it's uh, not so bad when you've got some positives coming out of it. And, you know, I was talking to Rand and Rand put me with Travis and his team and they spent a really deep dive on the market and what subleases are out there and the kind of activity we're seeing. I think there's going to, this is really good activity. So Travis, if you can kind of go from there, it'd be great. And I'll let everybody open you up for questions. Perfect. Thank you, Bill. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of you before, but for those who I haven't, I'm Travis Booth on uh, Cushman's tenant representation team. And so a part of the services that we obviously provide to our clients is the evaluation of their office space. So a part of that includes the evaluation of how they're occupying the space, hey Chase, <laughs> as well as their uh, evaluation of potential sublease needs and concerns. So I think this is something a lot of developers are, are seeing and hearing about with, uh, I would say there's kind of a tale of two stories. So you're hearing of this mass influx of sublease space that's kind of hitting the market post COVID. And um, I, I think there's really a story that I kind of want to take a deeper dive into with you all here. And so I believe Bill shared the deliverable, which I'll share on the screen here in a sec, but just to give a quick kind of overview of our team, um, myself exclusively, I currently have about 757,000 square feet of sublease space under my listings. And I think where we are today, versus what we're going to see start to hit in the next couple quarters numbers really tell two different stories. So I'm going to pull up our deliverable real quick. Bear with me. Bill, can you see this now? Travis, we see it. Yes, okay. I see it. Perfect. Sorry. I was muted. Thank you and shout out to Ryan. <laughs> So with the help of our research team, we've put together this really attractive deliverable, which kind of tracks what we're seeing in today's environment from a, from a sublease perspective. Now, I want to go over these stats with you, but also tell you what we're seeing and what we're transacting today that these stats won't particularly show yet. So paying attention to predominantly the biggest submarkets where we're seeing most of the lion's share of the activity not to be surprised, it's where a lot of your larger corporate markets are. So that's the Dallas, the core Dallas uh, CBD area. It's your Las Colinas submarket. It's your Richardson Plano, your Legacy Frisco, and then also some Uptown and Turtle Creek. And why this is important in today's environment, basically where we're at in most of those larger core submarkets, you have anywhere from about 15 to 20% all of, of all available space that's being listed are subleased spaces. So there's a tale to the story as why are these groups subleasing the space? What's the motivation? Is, is everyone really going to work from home, et cetera? 
Um, but just to kind of take a, a quick dive into the statistics to, to back up the trends that we're seeing. Um, when looking at your major submarkets, those I listed earlier, you have about a representation of 50 to 60% of the DFW market as a whole are in those major submarkets. So looking at those core submarkets and what percentages of the sublease space that's available is a representation of all space available. Just looking at Las Colinas, you've got 12% of all space listed as sublease space. Um, ranging, you've got Richardson Plano, which is about 15% of all availability of subway space, and then Legacy Frisco and Uptown, respectively, almost 20% of all space that is listed is uh, subway space. So, so what are the trends from where we were about a year ago or in our pre-COVID environment to where we are today? So what we've seen is about a 90% a increase and total sublease space is listed. So if you see our, our graph right here, which I'm indicating with my mouse, this is a representation of all sublease space listed on the market, which we were about 4.2 million square feet um, prior to, let's call it December or March of last year. And there's obviously been a significant increase thereafter. So as companies kind of navigated the first couple of months, um, there was really a wait and see approach. Now what we're seeing is companies are, they have a little more clear, clarity, um, visualization into what their projected future headcounts are. So you're, you're starting to see a lot of um, more companies make decisions with respect to what to do with their spaces. So staying on just the current trends as a moment, um, as you see a, a big proportionate of those subleases that are listed, have less than five years of term remaining. So you're seeing a lot of short-term availabilities, not these super necessarily long-term spaces that are listed. And again, as the market is today, we have 8 million square feet of total sublease space listed across DFW. Going to the next page, um, one thing I would like to, to show is what proportion of subleases make up a representation of sizes? So if you look at this pie graph, almost two thirds of all sublease spaces that are listed are larger than 20,000 20, square feet. So what you have, just to generalize and summarize, are a lot of corporate large users that have this potentially excess space that they're marketing for sublease. So it's not your typical 5,000 square feet and unders. It's not your half floor, multi-tenant floor users. Uh, a vast majority of the sublease spaces that are listed are these full floor or larger opportunities. Um, another just, I think, important graph to show is this shows the sublease amount of space that are listed with respect to each specific submarket. So you can track this, the trends in such, such submarkets. So where you're seeing the largest spikes, again, are your submarkets that are typically dominated by, by your larger, more corporate users. And I would say less your local kind of independently ran decision-making decision makers here in Dallas. So for example, Las Colinas, you've seen a massive spike in the number of subleases that were listed prior to Q2 of 2020 same as Legacy Frisco. Here you're seeing a, a larger increase as well as Richard Plano. I think it's a, it's a general assumption across the board that there is a, an increase overall, but where you're seeing these large spikes, if you will, are in these larger, predominantly more corporate dominated um, submarkets. So again, as a, rep as a representation to the percentage of subleases available with respect to all availabilities in those submarkets. This is a good just indicator, but again, you're, you're typically on average anywhere between about 10 to 20, 25% of all availabilities are um, subleases today. Now, some, some interesting, interesting things that Bill and I talked about are, why are these subleases being listed? What's, what's the true, uh, story behind these spaces. 
And I would say a majority of the cases of our leases, subleases that we're marketing are, are companies that simply had very ambitious growth expectations prior to the current market that we're in. So as an example, uh, we represent a, a client that relocated from about 35,000 square feet into an 88,000 square feet space in 2019. They had ambitious plans to, to grow in the Dallas market, so they took down a significant amount of excess space. So focusing on this one particular case study, um, we now have their entire portfolio, the entire 88,000 square feet listed on the sublease market for two reasons. One, if someone were to come to us and need half the space, what we'd in essence do is sublease the, the excess space that they don't need today, or if someone potentially needed the entirety of the space, we would sublease the entirety of the space and then relocate them into 40, 30 or 40,000 square feet elsewhere. So why that's important is because that's 88,000 square feet of space that was not on the market um, two, two quarters ago, if you will. But just because we have 88,000 square feet of space listed doesn't mean it's a, it's a net reduction of 88,000 square feet of space that's being utilized in the market. Um, another obviously Im important reason is our companies are figuring out how they want to utilize both working from home and, and working um, from the office environment. And there, there have been a number of clients, I would say a, a lesser percentage that are allowing a number of their, their, their tenants to let their employees either go work from home a number of days and or certain responsibilities with, within certain companies they are letting them work from home on a more permanent basis. But I would say, generally speaking, that is the lesser of the reason why companies are actually subleasing the space. I would say the larger, um, looking at Liberty Mutual as an example, the, the, the reason why their big block is available is because simply when they built that development, they built it with future growth anticipated, which whether it's materializing or not materializing, that excess space is typically what's being marketed today. Another, another trend, who, who, are, who, are who is taking these spaces? So we have a particular sublease out in um, Cypress Waters that we have had an abundance of activity on. And interesting to us, we have three LOIs on the space for basically full ask. Two of those LOIs are from out of town users that have absolutely no presence in Dallas today. But um, you have you have LOIs at face rate, at the yes, face rate, face okay. rate, 100% recovery. Um, two of those users are from California. There's an additional one that's a potential relocation from um, Kansas City, and then there's a there's a fourth that we're working on. That's a local business that is expanding within Dallas. So, the the interesting part again to summarize as a whole a lot of these users that we're seeing flock to these subleases are out of town users that don't have a presence in Dallas today, that plan to grow their, their presence in Dallas. And a, a sublease allows them to basically take over a space almost immediately, assuming the space is vacant. It's a quick solution for a group that's looking to, to, to move into the Dallas market quickly, make a short-term commitment on a space and then evaluate their long-term needs. So I would say that's the majority are out of town expansions or relocations, if you will. And the majority of the users that are taking these subway spaces are, are local expansions. Okay. Um, what, kind of, what kind of discounts are they typically, it sounds like that one, it's face rate, but what's the typical or what do you, what do you think? Is there a number you can put on an average? Great question, Bill. So. <laughs> There are really two extreme disparities. So what we're seeing are, are class A subleases that are in new developments with a high amount of amenities in mixed use projects that offer an abundance of amenities, et cetera, to tenants. We're transacting those at almost 100% face rate of what our clients are paying on those spaces. On the other hand, you have your 
class B value subleases that are not transacting. Those, those particular subleases, we're honestly advising that clients are lucky to get anywhere from, let's say, 50 to maybe 60% of the rent that they're paying on those subleases. So a, a trend that we saw, or a, an acronym that we used in 2019, there was the flight to quality. So this year, we kind of joke, we're seeing a flight to quality subleases. So on those, again, new developments with a mass amount of amenities and mixed-use areas, our clients are achieving almost 100% recovery on those rates that they're, that they're paying, which are close to the, the current face rate of availabilities being listed by the respective um, leasing agents of those properties. If you were gonna make a prediction, what do you think, how long, one thing that's good to me is there was 4 million when the market was good, right? There's 4 million of sublease space based on this graph before the market went to COVID. So it's kind of doubled, but it's only added an additional 4 million. I, I don't know sure. why I think that is positive, but I do. Um, <clears throat> how long in your mind, based on the activity you're tracking, is it going to take the market in current condition to absorb that 4 million feet? So great question, Bill. So <laughs> I referenced my particular 757,000 square feet of space that, that I have listed, I'm either in leases or we have transacted 368,000 square feet of space in the last handful of weeks that are not represented in these current numbers. So of my sublease listings that I had that, were, that went into these facts and figures that you have in the sublease deliverable in front of you, 48% of those spaces have been transacted or are in the process of being transacted via, we're, we're in lease negotiations. So I, I do anticipate additional sublease space to come on the market. There are some users that we're talking with and, and formulating um, marketing strategies now, but I would suggest what you're not seeing in the numbers yet are as quickly as these quality subleases are, are being listed, they're also, being transacted. And, and there's, there's a reason behind it. So we, we talked about these potential, let's say out of town companies that are they're coming into Dallas and are looking to make a, a quick um, entrance. They don't necessarily always have the time to, to build out yeah. space, to go through the construction process, yeah. the permitting process, et cetera. They have these plug and play opportunities that at the loss of the sub-landlords, they are able to capitalize on. And when I say at the loss of the sub-landlords, these, these sub-landlords in general aren't coming out 100% whole. So when they moved into these respective spaces, they were spending, let's say above and beyond the TI allowance on average, anywhere from an additional 50 to 100% above the TI allowances that the, the landlords were contributing. On top of that, those sub-landlords were investing in the furnitures, the equipment, the technology that was going to these spaces as well. So when I, when I talk about 100% recovery, that's pretty much on the, 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 the rate that yeah. those sub-landlords are then paying, but they are taking a loss on the capital that was invested sure. in the space, but it is but, to the benefit of these sub-tenants. Right, but I mean, I remember days when they, you've got your sunk cost and you're discounting your rent 50%. So, sure. So, um, and that's what we talk about the tale of two stories the class A high end mixed use, right. but also the class B that is still probably status quo. So, you're saying the class B is going to sit there until it's deeply discounted, probably, right? Yes. Correct. Um, and so, did you answer uh, how long do you think it takes us to the market to suck up the 4 million feet? And then I'd like to open it up to questions. So the million dollar answer, <laughs> the million dollar question. Your opinion, it doesn't, you know, just your, your ballpark. Do you think it's two years, like 18 months? So I, I would say from, from my perspective on these class A subleases that we're listing, we probably have an average list time, I would say about six to nine months before they're transacting. So, and again, I, I keep focusing on these kind of higher end spaces because this is where the velocity is, but I would say 
there's there's a there's a almost a lag of about six to nine months as as quickly as these spaces are being listed. Yeah. I think within the next twelve months or so, those spaces will be transacted. Okay. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. Hey, Bill. Uh, it's Rick Purdue here. Rosewood. How are you? Good, Rick. How are you? Good. Travis, question: When people yes, the the ones out of town looking, uh, what what are they primarily focused on? Price, location, finish? What What's the, uh, do they find their location they want to be in and then go from there? Do they find the price point and then go from there? What's the, what's the focus? So the number one driver um, tends to be that companies initially focus on a sub-market for a specific reason based on the talent that they are trying to procure. So the, the companies that are pursuing uptown typically are going to be different than what I would say the more corporate larger users that are pursuing the, the Las Colinas and or legacy submarket. So the, the employee demographic is kind of the first driver that really kind of dictates which submarket that these, these groups focus on. And then what we're seeing is a lot of these users go out and run a, a wide canvas search of all the sublease spaces that are available. And um, obviously, it's a mixture. Um, everything, all price is kind of relative to the quality of the respective buildings, the furniture of the spaces, et cetera. And based on the client's preference, whether they're really trying to pursue a really nice, well thought out, high quality, finished out space, or more value is really more up to them. Got it. Yeah, thank you. Any more questions? All right, Travis, thanks, good job, appreciate it. Okay, uh, Brian, um, kind of going into this, uh, multifamily was the bell of the ball, kind of sounds like you're gonna tell me it still is. As an office developer, I just feel like I'm being mistreated, but um, love your view of how the world looked pre-COVID, early COVID, and what it looks like today on multifamily. We've got a pretty, uh, I've always, the last couple of years, we've had a very robust pipeline of, uh, of deliveries. Uh, for the year-ended uh, second quarter, we delivered about 25,000 units. We absorbed about 18. If we look at the next 12 months going forward, we're supposed to deliver about 27,000, and we'll probably absorb 21, 22,000 of that. So although that sounds like a lot, we've had the occupants are still projected to be in the 94% range. Um, I think another thing that we're going to see is that there will be uh, a very limited number of new starts uh, that, that aren't already, you know, the, the people already don't have their financing in place because uh, it's, 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 there's a lot of challenges getting construction debt. Uh, so I think you'll, you'll see the, the starts uh, tempered down. Um, I think that basically all of the uh, brokerage firms had record first quarters this year. Um, out of my office alone, we did over 1.1 billion in the first quarter. And then uh, come about March 15th, you know, the airbags went off and transactions, you know, basically came to, to a halt. Uh, so what we've seen since then, uh, starting in about June, we saw uh, a significant pickup since, since the uh, pandemic started, we've closed 12 deals, of which that would probably be a third A's, a third B's, and a third C's. Um, and then as we look at where the pricing had firmed up on that, there was only one of those deals that had any discount to pre-COVID pricing. And that was a class C deal, which we had about uh, a 1.5% pricing um, differential. Um, so you know, we closed 12 deals since the pandemic. We've got another, uh, we've got another uh, 12 deals that we have uh, under contract. Um, and I think the interesting thing on these other 12 under contract are that 10 of the 12 deals basically had hard money day one. Um, they did not go through a conventional marketing uh, process because sellers were really interested in how quick can we bring these these deals, uh, you know, and get closed. So they didn't want the, the, the conventional 
you know, 16 week marketing period. They, they wanted to go out to a targeted, a targeted group of people with a scope on a rifle and uh, select the buyer, you know, who they thought had the greatest probability of closing and transact. Um, so uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things you had to handle too with the changes in due diligence because getting access to units, getting third party providers to the sites. But so we were uh, very pleasantly uh, surprised with uh, uh, what that uh, what that turnaround um, meant. Um, so the the other thing that we're um, uh, the other thing that we're seeing is that um, you know the collections uh, surprisingly have held up very well. We haven't really seen any any big uh, any big issues uh, on the collection so far. Um, Cap rates have, have held up on our class A's and B's. On our A's, they're like low to mid fours. The B's are mid to upper fours. Class C's are high fours to low fives. Um, we recently did a deal in the in the suburbs, uh, suburban deal uh, that you know traded. It was in lease up. It traded at a 60% occupancy, 60% occupancy with no rental guarantees. At a price of uh, you know the low 200s a unit, um, and uh, uh, that was with an institutional buyer who didn't really come to the site. They had a local asset manager sign off on it. But one of the things that's propping up the, the business, the rates, is uh, low interest rates. I mean, you can get agency debt today; it's plentiful. You can get agency debt in the high twos, low threes. That was one deal that was done uh, in the last uh, week or two. It was like a two point. 2.4% rate, 10-year money, uh, but that was a green had, had had a green initiative with it. A lot of the leasing traffic, a lot of the traffic that we're getting coming into town is from uh, I would probably say the biggest out-of-town buyers that we've got are coming in from New York and also probably LA. Uh, I think both of these markets, you've got a lot of uh, owners up there, especially in New York, that the families would never sell. But I think there's so much concern about the political unrest up there and where they see landlord-tenant laws changing and what have you. Uh, as an example, in L.A., L.A. passed an ordinance that you can't evict anybody until basically January of 2022. Uh, I know of a, of a group out there that's got a building they own in downtown L.A. I think it's 60, they're collecting 60 percent and can't do anything about it until the end of, uh, until the end of next year. Um, and I think with a lot of the challenges that have taken place in uh, office, retail, uh, hotels, the, a lot of this money that needs to get placed, they're having challenges in those sectors. So a lot of that's gravitating into the, um, gravitating into the multifamily sector. Um, in terms of underwriting, what are we seeing? Uh, I think we're, we're seeing that buyers on a go-forward basis are looking at the next 12 months as the rents being flat, if not a little negative. And then I think there's a pretty positive outlook on what's going to happen in 22, 23, and 24. And then I think in 22, you're probably looking at 1% to 2%. And then I see a number of buyers that are, are looking at 23 and out at 3 4 5% uh, a year. Um, we've got, um, uh, you know, on the institutional equity, that's basically been on the sidelines. They've hit the pause button. Uh, they, they don't let their people get on on uh, airplanes and really there's there's no sense of, of urgency there. I, I think in summary what, what I'm saying is I'm very pleasantly surprised at, at the rebound that we've had in our sector. Um, and at the end of the day, 2020, I think for uh, you know the major brokerage firms are, are gonna have uh, a pretty good year despite the, the, the turmoil. Uh, and I've just been amazed at, at the, the, the return and the vibrancy and I think as long as we continue to collections hold up and as long as interest rates stay, stay stable, I think we'll continue to see a gradual, continuous improvement um, in, the, in the transaction. So that's, that's, let me ask you a quick question. You said 25,000 units were delivered and 18,000 were, were absorbed. Right. So what's happening to that other... 7,000 units. I mean, are they, I mean, are people buying, like you said, a guy bought it at a lease up at 60%. Did he buy it as if it was 95% leased? Based on that, on, on that deal, 
he was assuming that he was going to get to 95%. And at 95%, that would have been a four and a half cap. Okay. Yeah. And then is there, is there increasing vacancy in all, all asset classes for multifamily or is it all getting absorbed? I, I think for the most part, you know, cause we're saying even despite all the deliveries and then when you look at even with the projection of, of the deliveries over the next 12 months, we're still supposed to be at 94%. Okay. So I think it's still, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think there's, there's really going to be a lot of, uh, most investors look at, at, at DFW in the past five years, we've had so many more buying groups come into town that are focused on, uh, you know, that look at this as, as, as probably one of the best markets in terms of long-term dynamics. I think in terms of everything that's happened nationwide, when you look at this pandemic and everybody, uh, a lot of big buyers wanted to just focus on East Coast, West Coast, gateway cities, but I think, uh, and, and transit-oriented development cities that uh, I, I think that Dallas-Fort Worth is going to be a net beneficiary of, of, of all this pandemic. And as, uh, as we, we were talking about in the sublease conversation, a lot of these buyers who plan to those people for that space are coming from out of town. Um, I, I'm seeing more and more people moving from out of town. On my block alone, I've had two people that were in the finance business relocate, relocate from New York City. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're going to continue to see, you know, more, uh, you know, more companies move in this area, and and Dallas is still, you know, from a rental standpoint, it's still, you know, the rents are still pretty cheap. Any questions from the from the group? Well, I was <clears throat> Brian. I was really complete and very well done. I appreciate it. Right. Everybody, I appreciate uh, you being on and. Uh, I hope you found the content uh, worth your time, and um, we'll do it again in a month. Everybody have a great day. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Sean Donahue, Travis Booth, Brian O'Boyle, and all of the CRE executives who provided their insights as we continue to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember to subscribe to the show if you're tuning in for the first time, and to follow Trek on social media. Again, we've linked to all of our handles in the show notes. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.